0: Hello, everyone welcome to another episode of the chat where we're working to destroy and dismantle stereotypes about justice impacted people we can't wait for you to hear from our next guest so stay tuned welcome to another episode of the chat and i'm so excited to be here with david garlock today um it's just a pleasure to have you on
1: Well, it's an honor to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Me as well. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what you do professionally. And I know that you have a website, and if you can share that with our listeners today, that would be great.
1: Yeah. So, currently, my full time job is I'm a public speaker. So, I travel the country and speak in universities, uh, conferences, or churches. Um, A lot of times, uh, and universities, it's criminal justice programs, it's social work programs, and actually, the occupational therapy program at UAB brought me in in November. So that was definitely an amazing opportunity to talk about how occupational therapy can be used in pre-entry and re-entry for those that are coming home from incarceration. Uh, My website is davidlgarlock.com and uh, email you can reach me at is dgarlockspeaker at gmail.com.
0: Great, thank you so much. And I'm curious, you had talked about the occupational health piece as far as that being something that's beneficial, like for reentry. And did you say prior to reentry as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, because uh, our criminal legal system gets reentry wrong. Um, There's many states that only want to begin preparing somebody to get out of prison two months before they are released, you know, and that is silly. Uh, Reentry needs to begin on day one. Um, So we have about 2.3 million people that are incarcerated. 96% of these individuals are going to be coming home. So do we want them to be prepared when they come home? Or do we just want to throw them some basic skills to get out and to potentially thrive? You know, one thing I'd love to tell people, or ask people is how many years of schooling did you go through before you went to college? Typically, it's going to be 12 or 13 years, depending on preschool and stuff. It's not like you're just going to go to school for three months and go to college. So that's my analogy as far as preparing somebody to get out of prison and to be successful. You know, those people who are prepared, um, have support system, but also have the, the understanding of what they're going to come against are going to be those individuals that are going to be able to succeed and not just succeed but to thrive when they're released from prison.
0: So it sounds like you're an advocate for these services obviously starting way before a person is released like while they're still in incarceration and so it's not just kind of this after the fact here's some things to help you.
1: Oh absolutely you know and I've had some people ask me too as far as like um, prison ministry you know they're like what is the best type of prison ministry in your opinion and I always tell them I mean I love the fact that churches are able to come in once a month and to preach you know but my ideal prison ministry is somebody that would come in six months to or, or a year before somebody's getting out and begin mentoring them, you know, creating a relationship. And then once that individual is released from prison, they're able to walk with them for six months or a year or longer when they get out of prison, you know, and now they have part of their support group already in place. You know, I, everybody knows the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. My spin on that is it takes a village for a returning citizen to be successful. So it takes a person's family. It takes a person's community. It takes a place of faith. It takes employers. It it takes support groups. It takes all these different entities coming around this individual and speaking life into them, letting them know, Hey, I believe in you, whatever you do, you can achieve, you know? And that's what I had when I got out of prison, you know? So I served 13 and a half years in prison. Um, My mom, my dad, my grandma, and my sister all passed away while I was incarcerated. And so I didn't really have that family support. But the church that I attended in Montgomery, they became part of that family. Equal Justice Initiative and their um, prison reentry program was part of that family. The place I got my first job, actually my second job, because my first job only had for one day and two hours. But <laughs> my second job, uh, this This boss, you know, his name was Bud Skinner. He was probably my worst boss ever because he was cursing me out three days a week and I was doing everything right. It was just his personality. But he told me something when I was leaving Alabama to move up to Pennsylvania to attend college. He told me, he's like, David, you had a crap story dealt to you, but he used a different verb there. You could probably uh, fill it in. Um, And he said, you don't act like you're a victim. And he's like, that's going to take you a long way in life, you know? And just him giving me the job because I shared everything to him about my past, you know, what sent me to prison. And he told me, he's like, because you were open and honest, I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to start you off at $9 an hour as a dishwasher. And I was only a dishwasher for three days and got promoted because he saw my work ethic.
0: (laughs) So it sounds like obviously giving people opportunities is like a really huge piece of, you know, what it takes to be successful. Um, And I would say, like, that's probably true for folks that haven't been incarcerated, too. Right. As far as, you know, if you've lost parents in your support network, which some folks have. Having those kind of like wrap around people that are going to give you a job, people that are going to be there for you. You said like for a longer duration, other than just, you know, a few months, but for several months. Um, and so that's what I'm hearing is very important. And I would agree with you there. Um, I know you said you do public speaking, and I know that you have done it here in the United States. And it sounds like you had mentioned. Earlier, when we were talking, that you'd be open to opportunities that were outside of the United States as well. Is that correct?
1: Oh, absolutely. So I was blessed with the opportunity to get a pardon from Alabama last year, which is like winning the $1.9 billion Powerball. And so um, it's so wonderful, you know, not having any more of the parole restrictions over me. And I was actually supposed to be going to Italy in 2020 on a vacation. And I I got my passport and everything and then covid happened and so my passport is bare it is empty so yes i would love to travel to the country and speak and um I, I believe that my story is very unique you know and what happened to my brother and me uh, what sent us to prison but also really the advocacy that i do now
0: I would agree. You're you're definitely a large advocate in this space and that, you know, your story and just who you are as a person and like about redemption and grace, I just think it impacts a lot of people positively. So hope someone listening in another country decides to Put a stamp on your passport. Um, I think that would be wonderful, and I'd love to see it. I for those, I think most of our viewers probably know what a pardon is, but like, what would what is a pardon? As far as what did that do for you when you were able to get a pardon? Like you said, it was almost like winning the lottery in your state. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, really, the the main thing that I did, the the pardon did was it stopped my sentence. So, if I didn't get the pardon, I would have been on parole to October twenty seventh, two thousand twenty four. So, I had already been on prison or on um, on parole for just over nine years. And so the pardon uh, stopped the sentence right there. Um, I was able to, if I was still living in Alabama, I would have gotten my voting rights back because Alabama is still one of those states that disenfranchise people who have felony backgrounds, you know? So if you are in Alabama and you have a felony, the only way you can vote is if you get a pardon. And so it's it's... It's another one of those things that they use to cause populations not to be able to vote. And what's funny is at times you have some parties believe that people in prison are only going to vote for uh, the other party. But people in prison are like people out here. They're. They're partisan, you know, and it's not just right. It's not just left. You have people who believe both ways, you know. So I always find that so baffling that especially when you have conversations about all the states becoming like Vermont and Maine, where you can vote while you're incarcerated. While you're in prison. And people are like, oh, that's going to give this party all the votes, the 2.3 million votes. It's like, uh, no, it's probably split half and half, you know? And so it's always baffling to, to hear those types of conversations.
0: Yeah, it sounds like like it's like a largely untapped voter block, right? Oh, it
1: it definitely is, you know, and I mean, really, when you think about it, too, I mean, when you think about the county jails, everybody in the county jail that has not been sentenced yet or has been sentenced to to a misdemeanor is eligible to vote, but there aren't enough organizations and individuals who are going in there trying to help this population vote. And that's just such a large group of individuals who aren't able to exercise their rights as a citizen.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you shedding light on that. I think that's such an important area um, to talk about. is just that civic engagement, especially because, you know, if a person is already wrapped up in the criminal legal system, having civic engagement opportunities, you know, tend to make people less likely to stay in that system and more likely to be, you know, in society and what people would consider contributing member of society. Um, yes and i want to shift gears just a tiny bit because i know that you are an advocate for um removing the registry requirements and i know that some folks know a lot about that some folks know nothing about that so just however you know deep you want to go into that as far as what that means to you and why you're an advocate for that that would be great
1: yeah and when you think about the registry you know when the first registry was back in 1941 and it was in california and it was primarily uh, around gay men you know and it was uh, a a list they were using to um punish individuals for being gay um and then we fast forward And we've created... Um, Jacob Wetterling's parents helped create the the first registry. Then you have Megan's Law. Um, The recent one is the Adam Walsh Law. And so when you think about the registry, you know, when it really became big in the 90s, it was just a law enforcement only list. Um, And so what that means is only the law enforcement individuals could see this list and see where individuals with sexual Offenses were living. And then society wanted this, these lists to be public, you know. And so now you can go in any state and type in the registry, sexual offense registry, or Megan's Law, and you can pull up. A list of everybody in that state and typically where they live, where they're working and different things like that, you know, and it's uh this list, you know, does quite a few things, you know, one, it limits where people can live, you know, so now you're taking some of that Maslow Maslow's hierarchy of needs and not allowing people to have a place to live. I mean, just think about Florida and just the the different Uh, I I call them like lepers, leper colonies that are created because of these individuals on the registry and they can't find housing because Florida has some of the harshest residency restrictions for people on this list. You know, and each state is different. You know, Pennsylvania um, doesn't have a residency restriction law, you know, and uh, which I think is amazing, you know, because you if you tell somebody you go to prison, you do your time and you come out, we want you to be su- successful and to thrive, but you can't live in these areas. You can't work at this area. You can't do this or that. You know, you're throwing all of these hurdles in somebody's way. Um, then families are, Definitely impacted by this, you know, because if somebody's on the registry, they can no longer go see their son play sports, they can no longer go pick up their child from school. Um, there's so many different things that are prevented from that f- from that parent to do. There's many times where you have a couple and they have to live in two different residences because of the residency restrictions. Could you imagine having an apartment that you're paying $800 for, but then you're paying also another $1,200 a month for an apartment where your wife and your kids are living? So now you're paying $2,000 for two residences and you really only need one so there's so many things as far as that that prevent people from being able to just succeed and thrive and when you think about the registry when you think about sexual offenses you know um i hate the term sex offender, you know, I don't use it unless I'm talking about it in a way like this. You know, I always talk about and use the term somebody that's been convicted of a sexual offense or somebody that's committed a sexual offense. Um, There's some people who like the term registrant, you know, because they're forced to register. So this is a term that some individuals use as humanizing, but also making the the point that this is something we have to do. We do not want to be on the registry, but this is what we're being forced to do. Um, And then with that, you know, there's a lot of um, counseling that people have to go through. Um, In these counselings, they have to do a polygraph. So polygraphs are inadmissible in court as far as finding somebody guilty. But when you deal with somebody that's on the registry, if somebody on the registry fails a polygraph, they can be sent back to prison because of that polygraph. And it's so baffling. It's like, it's inadmissible in court, but it's admissible when you're dealing with this population, you know? And it's just, there's so many things that are so frustrating about the laws and just the, the thoughts around this population, you know, and um, there's a lot of people who advocate for people who've committed sexual offenses, who are on the register of family members. You know, I am really an unlikely advocate, you know, because my brother and I, we took the life of the person who had been sexually and physically abusing us for years and went to prison for it. But I believe about I believe in grace. I believe in mercy. I believe in forgiveness. Uh, when I graduated college, I, I was able to get a job as a program director of a Christian reentry home called New Person Ministries, and our foundational verse was second corinthians 5 17 that says therefore if any man be in christ he's a new creature behold all things that pass away all things that become new and that's how i looked at these men i didn't look at them as the offense that they committed but as the man who was sitting before me
0: i think that's a really powerful testament especially since um like one because of your faith and like also because of just your own personal experience Um, with abuse and still thinking that the registry is not a best mechanism for accountability. And I and, and I think you and I know how many people the registry scoops up like that, you know, just it's such a wide, wide range of folks that people don't really have that understanding of how many people are truly on these different types of registries. I still could hear the opposition as you were explaining saying, Well, people people deserve this, you know, because that's really what we hear. I mean, what? What strong messages would you have to say to the opposition that's saying, you know, this is this actually keeps us safer. Like this registry is here because we don't want people living next to us because those people are unsafe.
1: Well, I would say that if we're looking at safety, um, we have to just look at the data. Ninety five percent of sexual offenses that are happening are happening by people who have never been arrested and gone to prison or who are in the registry. Um, the rates that this population people have committed uh, sexual offense are going to reoffend and commit another sexual offense is 1.5 to 5.5%. They have the lowest rates of recidivism out of anybody. Um, Pennsylvania, um, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections just put out their 2020 reentry report and on one of the pages, they have it in bold that says, uh, nonviolent property crime individuals have the highest recidivism rate, and people who've committed a sexual offense have the lowest. And so if the Department of Corrections is brave enough to put that out in the report and have it in bold for people to to really see, that's something that we have to look at. We have to look at this data, you know? What our society does and what the media does is it takes one story. Why do we have all of the registries names after one person? Megan's law, Adam Walsh law. It's one story that they're using to get this hysteria around and say, this is what happens all the time. It's like, no, I mean, the, the the same thing happened with Willie Horton. You know, it was a situation, a program that had a ninety nine point two percent success rate. And you had Willie Horton commit the horrible offenses that he did. And the program was done away with because of one person. And so we have to get away from this fear mongering. You know, that is what the media uses to push bills like this to say that this population is never going to change. When I graduated college, I never thought that I would be doing this work. When I applied to new person ministries, it just said Christian Reentry home, looking for a program director. I'm like, cool, let's do this. And then after I applied, I talked to the executive director. I shared my story with him. He's like, oh, so this is the population we work with. Can you work with them? I was like, absolutely, because of my faith, you know, and what we have to do is we have to get past what somebody has done. You know, everybody's like, do the crime, do the time, you know, they've done the crime. They, they committed the crime they did the time but now you're adding more time with this registry you're it, it's a civil institution that can actually uh, give criminal charges which is something that's so baffling it's like they all of the um all of the the legislatures try to say that the registry is not punitive it's not punishment and that's how They try to keep it going on, you know, but there's so many different cases around the country that's like, okay, if this isn't punitive, how can you send somebody back to prison? How can they have all these things? How can you put somebody on the registry who went to prison when the registry didn't even exist? It's like, why? And so when we think about safety, you know, it's not A list isn't going to keep somebody safe. What we need to do is we need to take that money that we're wasting on this registry and we need to put it towards education. We need to put it towards real prevention. I mean, if somebody if my neighbor is giving my son all of these gifts and I know nothing about it that's going to be red flags, you know, but I'm going to let my son know if anything like this happens, let daddy know, because that is not supposed to be happening. So it's really about educating the kids. It's educating those. uh, It's educating parents. It's educating teachers. It's educating pastors, anybody who is in a position of authority in these people's life. So they know that they can come to us and share this because this whole thought, uh, another thing that is blown out of proportion is stranger danger. You know, a lot of people think that that is where a lot of your sexual offenses are happening. 5%. 95% of sexual offenses happen by somebody who the individual knows. You know, and... When you think about the registry, too, it's like this huge umbrella. I mean, typically when somebody hear the term sex offender, they're thinking of a a 40 to 60 year old man who molested a child and that's not always the case you know there's we have about a million people on the registry right now 200 of those individuals went on the registry before they were 18 years old these were children that we put on the registry in states like florida they're going to be on the registry for the rest of their life
0: Wow, well thank you for sharing all of that and being such a strong advocate in this space because I definitely know there are not enough advocates that are, you know, talking about this and and bringing all of those facts and information to light so i appreciate i appreciate you for doing that i know before we go i definitely want to get some just some tips for our viewers from you on what are kind of the best leadership kind of encouragement tips that you would drop for people that are both inside and outside they may be the same they may be different we do have viewers that are both inside and outside and they do get a lot of encouragement from listening to people's stories and the work that you're doing so anything that you You could just leave as far as some, you know, encouraging, encouraging tips for folks that are listening would be great.
1: Well, I mean, I like thinking of uh, a biblical way. You know, in the Bible, you have Timothy, you have Paul, you have Barnabas. And we all need these three types of people. So Paul is the mentor. Paul is the person that mentored Timothy. You know, he took him underneath his wing and became his spiritual father. You know, so we all need mentors. We need people that we can look up to, that we can reach out to, that we can have conversations to that and that we can lead like. you know, Um <clears throat> john maxwell you know talks about in his 21 irrefutable 21 irrefutable laws of leadership that there's one of the laws this law of the lid and so as high as the leader is that's as high as the people underneath him can go you know and so we need to find those leaders who have a high lit you know we don't want somebody who doesn't have great leadership skills to follow and to mold ourselves after <laughs> then we all need Timothy, you know, we need people that we are mentoring. Um, so I always look at it like this, you know, people poured into me. Now I get a pour into other people. And then after I pour into them, I have more room to get more poured into me. Um, and so we need people that we're mentoring, that we're helping go along the way and to just help them reach their potential. My favorite one is the Barnabas, you know, so Barnabas, uh, the name means son of encouragement. So we need those people that are going to come into our life, that's going to encourage us, that's going to speak life into us, that is going to be there. And just to when we're going through a situation, just to have that word, have that um, ability to speak something to us that takes us from that sadness and say okay hey i can get through this thank you for helping me out you know and that's something i love to do i love to encourage people and just uh, to speak into them you know and let them know that you know whatever you're going through it's just for a season and you're going to be able to Mm -hmm. overcome this and um i'd say the second thing is affirmations are so important you know um in one of the behavior modification programs i was in in prison we actually had this one class called positive mental attitude and it was really just about affirmations you know and like some of them were if you fail to plan you're planning to fail you know and it's just basic simple things but They're like, duh, you know, Um, but another one that I'll never forget is um, it says whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe the mind of man can achieve. And it's so powerful, you know, and this is something I, I learned like 20 years ago in the class and I still remember it, but it's still so prevalent in my life, you know, because it's like whatever I get in my mind and I believe in it, I can do it, you know, and that's. What has had me um, achieve everything that I have in the almost 10 years I've been out of prison, you know, and I tell people I joke around, like, especially like in Nevada, you know, where weed is legal. I was joking around. I was like, man, if you told me this over 10 years ago, I would have been like, where's the best weed? You know, and what was funny is like one of the students like in my apartment, I was like, it's like only in Nevada (laughs) and Oregon. (laughs) And California and about 15 other places.
0: (laughs) Right. No, that's wonderful. It is really powerful advice. So thank you so much um, for sharing that with all of our our listeners today and just appreciate you for being the light that you are and an advocate that you are and going around and speaking your, you know, testimony and and your principles on, on what you see as a better world for all of us. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. And I, I was am amazed with the work that you do and all that you do with uplift and just where your career is going to take you, you know?
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us for another episode of the chat. We appreciate all of our listeners, viewers, and supporters. If you want to know more about the uplift in the chat, head over to our website at www.upliftmentors.org. Join our coalition, drop us a donation, or just spread some love and share this around with your friends and family.